This is the Passover season, and as we consider the festival of Passover and unleavened bread, one of the items that we need to remember is the crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Many of us are very familiar with the story. I was reading not long ago from Matthew chapter 27, and I would like everyone to open up your Bibles and touch base with me in Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse number 19. Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 19. We'll pick up the story, a familiar story. Let's pick it up in the middle now. Matthew 27, beginning at 19. Please follow along. It's speaking of Pontius Pilate and Jesus was before him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. When my eyes lit upon verse number 25, and the people cried out and said, His blood be on us and on our children, that caught my attention. His blood be on us and on our children. That's the title of our study tonight. And what we're going to be looking at a little bit here this evening is this idea of one generation being connected to another in terms of guilt. Now, there were a lot of unexpected things that happened in the trial of Jesus. The trial and suffering elicited some very unexpected responses. And this is certainly one that I thought was likely to be, well, just just not likely, just unexpected. Why would they be so passionate that in calling out for his death, that they said, let his blood be on us and on our children? What a frightening thing to say. If we continue in the gospel story, and we go to the gospel of Luke, we'll find the follow-up to that statement. Luke chapter 23. Now you'll need to follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 23 and we break into the story of Jesus' passion. We break into the middle of the story again. Luke 23, Jesus was being led off to be crucified, dragging the big cross and all. And as he passed through the city streets, let's pick up the story. Beginning at verse 26 of Luke chapter 23. And as they led him away, they lay hold upon one Simon, the Cyrenian, 
coming out of the country and laid on him the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. And so now there's some sympathy. But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And I'd like to call your attention to Jesus' statements as he was being dragged through the street. He said prophetically, Don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children. Something terrible is coming. Now, Jesus' words were fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was crushed, utterly obliterated in one of the most horrific sieges in all recorded history. We know a great deal about that siege. It lasted over a year. We know much because of the detailed story and the detailed information provided by a historian named Josephus. That siege saw starvation, famine, catastrophe, disease, tumult, every imaginable horrific thing you've ever dreamed of unfolded within the city walls of Jerusalem as the months progressed and as the Romans tightened their grip on the city. The famine and the disease was just awful. The suffering and the death and the bodies piling up, the stench of human corpses reeked throughout the city. Well, much could be said about that terrible event. The purpose of our study isn't to recount tonight the events of that siege. The purpose of our study tonight is to examine a little bit more closely the thought that was introduced when the people cried out at the crucifixion of Jesus, let his blood be on us and on our children. What could that have meant? What did that mean? What kind of impact might that have had? Was it, is that a significant statement? As we look at this, I'd like to examine a little bit more closely a biblical concept that we could call multi-generational guilt, multi-generational sin, multi-generational blessing. It works both ways, you see. So let's examine this concept a little bit of multi-generational blessing, multi-generational sin, multi-generational guilt. We're going to start with what I'm going to call the divine perspective. God's perspective as He looks down upon humanity and sees all of us. It turns out that this is a pretty, uh, uh, how should we say this, a, a deeply embedded concept in Scripture. It's an important idea, and there's a number of illustrations of this that we could look at. 
I've got on the outline a couple of verses I'd like to call your attention to, and I'll touch on them very briefly. We might start in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, and we see this concept in a positive way. A positive way. We see this said of Abraham. Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now there's much we could say about Abraham and how his faithfulness became a blessing to his children and his grandchildren and to his offspring of many generations. Multi-generational blessing. We could go on the flip side, however, to the book of Numbers. You might recall this very frightening story. In the book of Numbers, you might recall, beginning, I'll just break into the story here, the story of Korah and his rebellion. And in verse 2 of Numbers 16, we find that there were 250 princes that rose up, 250 notable men that rose up in rebellion against Moses. And after they voiced their grievances and various things occurred, in the end, God decided that these people needed to be taught a lesson. And so, we discover, if we keep on reading on down in verse 27 and 28 and 29 in this chapter, we discover that God declared that those men and their wives and their children should be set aside over here in this open area. And we keep reading and we discover that in verse 31, the ground clave asunder and the earth opened up and swallowed them. All of their belongings, their wives, and their little ones, it says. Wow. (laughs) Not just the rebellious men were destroyed, but the children as well, their children. Wow, what what should we think about that? We could go in another direction. If you go to the New Testament, here's another aspect of this concept of multi-generational blessing or sin or guilt. In this case, this is also negative, and this is the implications that flow out of the sin of Adam. You'll recognize this verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, And death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Theologians have crafted a few terms for this concept. One is called the solidarity of man, sort of saying it's like we're all in it together. (laughs) But this, of course, is an important theological concept. That sin, the sin of Adam, has fallen upon all of us. Original sin, as it is sometimes called. There's yet other examples. Here's, another, here's one that's more encouraging. If we go to the book of Hebrews, it tells us again about something wonderful about Abraham. And we, it says here in Hebrews chapter 7, if you'd like a positive uh, side of this concept, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 9, it says, Levi... Paid tithes in Abraham. That is to say, the tithes that Abraham paid, Levi, his great-grandson, was given credit for. 
Well, how does all that work? Well, this is an interesting concept. This multi-generational sin, multi-generational guilt, multi-generational blessing. Our topic tonight really, though, is more about multi-generational guilt. That's what I want to look at. We need to look at generational guilt a little closer. And this can be a little bit confusing. And I hope I'm going to be able to lay this out properly, and I, I trust that God will guide me in this. But I'd like to look at a few verses. One of the key verses we ought to look at is found in Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse number 5. Now, as I look at these verses, please follow along. Read with me. They're on your outline there. So if you've got that in front of you, Exodus chapter 20, verse, beginning at verse number 5. Now, of course, this is part of the Ten Commandments. And we're looking at the Second Commandment. And if we break in in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 20, it says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, thy Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now pay attention. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Sounds like there's some potential generational guilt, generational connection. If we turn over to Exodus 34, we'll see another illustration of this. Exodus 34, beginning at verse number 6. On the positive side, it says, God keeps mercy for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but... That will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children into the third and fourth generation. Wow. And we can continue. Leviticus chapter 26 is another useful passage I'd better read into the record tonight. Leviticus chapter 26, and I'll just read verse 39. It says, and in terms of, of, of God um, bringing judgment, it says in verse 39, they that are left of you shall pine away in the iniquity of your enemies' lands, and also in the iniquities of their fathers shall they pine away with them. So we have a real sense in Scripture that there is a generational connection that's worth considering here. But on the other hand, on the other hand, there's a second group of verses we ought to look at. Now, this second group of verses can be illustrated by beginning at Deuteronomy 24. Now, you're going to discover as we read this cluster of verses that it seems to be articulating, at least on the surface, just the opposite. Deuteronomy 24, verse number 16, it says, as part of God's law, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man should be put to death for his own sin. Well, how does that jive with what we've just been reading? Huh, that's interesting. How about this case? In 2 Kings chapter 14, there's a story here about a king who was cleaning house in his kingdom. In 2 Kings 14, if we break into the middle of the story, verse 5, as this king is getting ready to punish people who had committed a uh, a great crime. Second Kings 14 verse 5, it says, It came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, 
that he slew his servants which had slain the king his father. But the children of the murderers he slew not, according unto that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers, but every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And one final confirming thought on this principle. Ezekiel 18, if we would like to jump to the prophet Ezekiel, verse number 20, let me read that. It says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So, it appears that we have two groups of passages from Scripture. They seem contradictory, but they're really not. Let me see if I can explain how I believe these are not contradictory, what we've read before and what we just finished reading in Deuteronomy, Kings, and Ezekiel. Now, the first group is what I'm going to call the divine point of view. It's the divine perspective. Now, the divine point of view and the divine perspective is all-knowing. And it gives God the prerogative to act very broadly, which He sometimes does. As He sees all men's hearts. But you and I are not God. You and I do not see other people's hearts. We can't even divine our own heart, let alone see someone else's heart. We don't try the reins. We don't understand motives. We don't know what makes people tick. All we know is what we see and what we hear. All we know is what's on the outside. And so you see, the second group is a legal principle. The second group is the human duty as judges and as kings and as those who dispense law and order. This is a matter of crime and punishment. As a matter of crime and punishment, we do not execute the children for the crimes of their fathers. Or the reverse. Now you say, well, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> Well, it actually, in, in ancient society, it wasn't necessarily obvious at all. A lot of ancient societies practiced extermination of an entire family for the crimes of a single person. In fact, as late as the medieval period, there, were, there was a legal principle that really stems more from Roman law than biblical law, but it was a legal principle that the Romans utilized in which, in England, they might cause someone to be what was called attainted. And if you are attainted, that means that you're punishment, you're punished for a crime, as well as all of your family. And your family would thus be completely ruined. Every piece of property you had would be confiscated, and there would be no future for your family, all because of the crime of one person in the family. Fortunately, our founding fathers put in the Constitution just a small statement that says there shall be no bill of attainder in this country. So we are used to the concept and the principle that we've seen in Ezekiel and we've seen in Deuteronomy 24 in which the criminal defendant if found guilty is punished and he alone. 
That's a matter of crime and punishment, and that's the human duty, and that's really a biblical principle. It's an important one. But that really kind of is a side note to our general topic tonight, because our topic tonight really is all about generational guilt. And we're really, I guess in many respects, we're more concerned with the divine perspective than human duty. And instead of thinking of this in terms of crime and punishment, we're thinking about this, this larger perspective. Now, how is it then that we can look at some of these passages, like the one we have in our commandment, the second commandment, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, how can we look at that and how can we come to understand that? And how can we come to understand where we began our discussion 20 minutes ago, when we looked at how the people of Jerusalem responded, and they said, when they wanted Barabbas instead of Jesus, they said, let his blood be on us and on our children. What does that mean? Was that some kind of a curse? Were they calling down a curse upon themselves unknowingly? What was going on? What does this mean? What does it mean for us? What might it mean for us as a people, as a family? Well, let's look about this idea of maybe a generational curse. Let's talk a few minutes about the possibility of, of generational curses. Is it possible that Matthew 27, 25 was a generational curse? When they cried out, let his blood be on us and our children, was that a generational curse? After all, Jesus, shortly after, said, this, you, 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 you don't know what's going to happen to you. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Something terrible is coming. And it did come upon their children. The city was utterly destroyed. Well, as we think about curses, and this is actually a large topic, I almost got lost in preparation for this lesson. I almost got sidetracked totally into this area because it's a broad topic, and I don't really know if I can get in and out of it rapidly and also accurately, but I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> One of the things we have to distinguish between is between the words of God and the words of you and I. Now, this is something that people get confused. God speaks an absolute word, an absolute word. You and I do not. Sometimes you speak foolishness. Sometimes you speak wisdom. Sometimes in the course of one day, you speak foolishness and wisdom. Over the course of a week, no doubt, I do too. We say a lot of things, some of which is just nonsense, perhaps. But God is not that way. There's a great divide between the words of God and the words of man. So let's think about the words of God. Now, when God had a need for light, he solved it quickly. He simply said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, I don't have that ability. If I walk into a darkened room and sit down and say to myself, I wish this room had light in it. And I say, let there be light. What will happen? Well, nothing will happen. What if I say it many times? Let there be light. Let there be light. If I say it enough times, will it eventually become illuminated because I spoke it? Of course not. <laughs> I'm just speaking words into the air. 
That's the difference between God and man. Now, with respect to curses, when God speaks a curse, it's absolute, and it's frightening. And there are a number of places where we can look in Scripture where God spoke an absolute curse. One of the first curses that we might mention in Scripture is when He cursed Cain. In Genesis 4, 11 and 12, He said, Thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee the strength. A fugitive and a vagabond thou shalt be in the earth. That curse was absolute. There's no doubt about it. It occurred just like that. Now, God's words create reality. Let there be light, and there was light. God's words create reality. You and I, our words alone do not create reality. They do not create reality. Yet, that's not to say that what words I speak might not be significant and important. We don't want to, I don't want to argue that our, what I say is meaningless. That wouldn't be right and true. Now, when we think about curses, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like me. Maybe there's more that do that don't, but I'm not sure. I haven't really tried to tally it up. But I know there are people who don't like me. And if someone says, you know, that Reed Benson's a real schmuck. I hope he has a car accident when he drives home tonight. Now, it doesn't matter how many times that gentleman says, Reed Benson's a schmuck. Does that make me one? Does his, do his words make me a schmuck? Will they make me have a car accident driving home tonight? Just because he says it? If he says it loudly, repeatedly? If he says it with a sprinkle of incense? If he says it under the trees, under a grove, and he calls out to some false god and says, Bring down judgment on that schmuck, Reed Benson! I call upon the god of lightning and thunder! Is that going to make it occur? No. It's all nonsense. Now, not to say our words don't have some importance, though. So in what respect might our words be a curse? In what respect might what we say actually have validity? In what respect can our words have impact? Well, there's two ways that I'd like to share with you that come to my mind. There may be more, but there's two ways I'd like to mentioned tonight. A human curse might be valid if it is really an observation of an already existing reality that has not yet emerged. A human curse can have validity if it really what it is is an observation of this already existing reality that has not yet emerged and you cannot yet see, but it's nonetheless operating. And we're all familiar with the principle, you reap what you sow. And there's often a time lag. And if one person observes that what has been sown is going to reap something very awful, 
that can be viewed as a curse. Now, for example, consider this story out of Judges chapter 9. Now, I won't read these verses, but if you're a good Bible student, you'll remember the curse of Jotham. Do you remember the curse of Jotham? It's a great and terrible story. (laughs) You might remember Gideon had many sons. One of his sons, Abimelech, decided to murder all of his brothers. One escaped. And as he was escaping, he declared a curse on on Abimelech who had killed all of his brothers. And he said, let fire come out and destroy Abimelech and the men of Shechem who helped him. And then Jotham ran away. We never hear from him again. If we keep reading in Scripture, we discover that Jotham's curse came true. It wasn't because Jotham had special words of power. It was because the reality of the circumstance was already operating. Abimelech was a man of violence and blood and evil. And his evil was going to catch up to him. And Jotham simply observed and spoke that which was already in operation. And all he had to do was watch it unfold. And indeed it did. That's a curse based on wise observation. Here's another curse. How many remember the story of King Saul chasing the Philistines one day, and he's hot on the trail of the Philistines with his army, King Saul is, and he said, you know, nobody should stop and eat today, and if they do, I place a curse on them. You can read about it in the Bible. Well, nobody did, except for one fellow who didn't hear the command. He didn't hear the curse that King Saul, his father, had declared. And that was Jonathan. And do you remember the story? What did Jonathan stop and eat? Found a little honey in the woods. And he had a little honey snack in the middle of the day. Well, they ended up catching up with the Philistines, and they won the day, and everything was great, and had a nice happy ending. The Philistines were whipped. And then somebody said, hey, Jonathan ate something today. King Saul was like, well, what do I do? Uh, okay, uh, Jonathan, I guess I'm going to have to execute you. So he proceeded to get ready to execute his own son. But all the rest of the army rescued Jonathan because he had done a great deed earlier. And he said, he's a great hero. You can't execute your son. Well, what happened? King Saul, he, really what was going on is King Saul was illustrating why he was a bad king. Why he was going to be a failure. He spoke a curse very rashly, and had it not been for others who rescued Jonathan, it wouldn't have been a tragic ending. Now that curse went nowhere. That curse fell flat. This curse that was spoken rashly by King Saul, all it did was discredit King Saul and revealed that King Saul was a bit of a fool. Now there's many other curses. How about this one? There's two, two curses from the life of David. Here's one. This is a curse that came out of the mouth of Nathan, but it was really from God. And you know this curse. After David had sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet came and said, David, I have a message from God. The sword's not going to depart from your house from here on afterwards. Bad things are going to happen to you, David. 
And there's going to be blood in your own house down the road, King David. That was a curse that God gave upon David out of the mouth of the prophet Nathan. Did that curse unfold? Absolutely. Perfectly. Exactly as Scripture describes it. Exactly as it was stated. It came true. Later on, there was yet another curse upon David. David had many adversaries. One of them was a guy named Shimei. This was when spoken from bitterness. Now, in the case of Shimei's curse, this is kind of an interesting story. This was during that moment when David was running from Absalom. And as he was running away from Jerusalem, there popped up someone from the house of old King Saul, a kin, kinsman of his named Shimei. And Shimei stood up on the hill looking down at David, and Shimei said, Saul, you know, I'm of, I'm, of, I'm of Saul, I'm of the house of Saul, and you, David, you're a real double schmuck. I mean, you're a really bad guy. You're, you're just a very, very bad person. And he declared all these curses upon David as David was running. So up on the hill, Shimei cursed David. Well, how did that all work out? Well, it didn't work out very well for Shimei at all. Shimei was assuming that David's troubles was because David had displaced the house of Saul. But that wasn't true. God displaced the house of Saul, and David merely was there to take his place. Shimei had his facts wrong. His curse went nowhere. And in fact, not long later, not long afterward, Shimei came crawling to David on his hands and knees, begging forgiveness. Please, David, remember what I said to you a couple weeks ago? I was a little out of line. Please, please don't chop off my head. <laughs> David forgave him. That curse of Shimei went nowhere. His words were meaningless. All it did was humiliate Shimei. But well, we could go on and on. And, and curses are rather interesting to study in Scripture. It doesn't really quite answer our question, though. Was Matthew 27, 25, when the people in the city of Jerusalem said, let his blood be on us and on our children, was that a generational curse? Do they bring that down upon the heads of their children? Well, that's, that's still a difficult question to answer. But I think there's a better explanation than to view that as a a generational curse, as interesting as curses are. Let's look at another element, though. As we think about this aspect of multi-generational sin and multi-generational guilt, let's go to this. We're going to have to go back to our foundational passages and read them more closely in Exodus 20. But here's a question I could ask you, and you should ask yourself, and maybe you have. Will I be punished for my grandfather's sins? Will I be punished for my grandfather's sins? Well, that's an interesting question. And, and without being too hasty to answer it, let's, let's read a little closer, see if we can get a, 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 what I think is a, a really biblical answer. I, I hope this is going to be a good and solid biblical answer. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Back to commandment number two, Exodus 20, where we began earlier in this study of multi-generational sin and guilt. It says... Breaking into verse 5, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, 
I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Them that hate me are going to suffer this. But, it says in verse 6, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So we see that God, God is prepared to bring judgment upon those that hate Him, but He's also equally prepared to show great mercy unto thousands of those that love Him. So it seems that in that passage we see a contrast between those that hate God and those that love God. So hold on to that thought. Those that hate God and those that love God. Now let's go to Exodus 34. Another passage we'd already looked at, and let's read this closely again. Again, it tells us on the negative side in verse 7 of Exodus 34, that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children upon the children's children of the third and fourth generation. But it also says, prior to that, that God keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Huh. It almost seems like it's a contradiction within itself, that single verse. Well, let's go to Leviticus 26. Now, in Leviticus 26, I read for you verse 39. And we were trying to look at this from a divine point of view. And in verse 39 of Leviticus 26, it's telling us that you may pine away for your iniquity. And also for the iniquity of your fathers, you will pine away. That is, you'll suffer. But if we keep reading, there is something happy or positive, or at least potentially. And then it says in verse 40, you see, if they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Look at that. Look at Leviticus 26, verse 40. Please, fasten your eyes. Leviticus 26, verse 40. And recall what we just read in Exodus 20 and Exodus 34. Leviticus 26, verse 40 says, If they shall confess the iniquity of their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they trespass against me and that they also have walked contrary unto me and that I have walked contrary unto them and brought them into the land of their enemies if their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and then accept the punishment of their iniquity then will I remember my covenant with Jacob also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land In other words, God is looking, waiting, and might I even say, hoping that His people will repent. He is looking, waiting, and perhaps hoping that that we will repent, and we will repent not only for our iniquities, but for the iniquities of our fathers. So, in a practical manner now, I'd like to try to answer the question in a simple way. And I I hope this is a biblical way. I think it is correct. And I think it's also practical. And I think it's something for each of us to consider. The question really is not, what did my grandfather do that I am punished for? I don't think that's really the right question. I think the question should be phrased something like this. Here's the question. 
Am I making the same mistakes as my grandfather? Am I committing the same sins as my grandfather? Am I doing the same things wrong that my grandfather did wrong? Now, I believe that if you love God, He will give you wisdom and strength to cut the sinful patterns in your family. I want to repeat that. If you ask God for wisdom and strength, you can cut the sinful patterns in your family. If you ignore God, those sinful habits will be reinforced. Reinforced. They will be reinforced or they can be cut. And that is your choice. That is your choice. And you say, well, I don't think I have anything in my family. Well, then you probably don't know your family history well. Now, I'm not here to say we're, you know, we all had grandfathers who were pirates or brigands or, you know, kidnapping, you know, ex-cons and so forth and so on. That's not the point, really, to try to paint this very bleak picture of our ancestors. But it is to say that we are not perfect. And we know that. Our parents were not perfect. Our grandparents were not perfect. And there are a multitude of things that occur in a family that really ought not to occur. Most every family has generational sin. Most every family does. Now each of us here tonight could pause and think a little bit about my family, my mother, my father, my grandfather, my grandmother, my maybe, maybe aunts and uncles. Look for, you, you can start to think about this and you can say, is there something in this family tree that maybe I should think a little bit about? Well, I'd say for many of us, the answer might be really, yes, there might be. Now, let me ask, uh, shift gears slightly. Are my children doomed to struggle with problems that have a family history? And there are plenty, as I say, I believe there are plenty of problems in a, in a family. Are my children doomed to struggle with problems that have a family history? I think the answer is no. Now, I'd like to really get practical now. We've really talked about this in an abstract biblical way. We've talked, looked at a number of Bible stories and examples from Scripture. But I want to get very practical, and I want you to listen and and see if, if this is of any value to you. I hope it will be. There are three possible solutions about how family iniquity and sin can be cut. First, we've got to identify wrong ideas and actions and habits. And we need to replace them with godly ideas and actions. Identify the wrong ideas, actions, and habits. Replace them with godly ideas and actions. Now, it is my contention that most problems with a family history are learned. That is my contention. And I think it's biblically accurate. Most problems with family history are learned. 
Now, this involves most sin that we struggle with. This involves lust, anger, pride, unforgiveness, gluttony, slothfulness. And those are just the ones that I thought of that I wrote down. There are probably many others. But those are some of the common ones that are rather common in families. I can think of, well, there's, as, as I scan my mind over families I've known and my own family, I can think of a couple items on that list that apply. And you probably can too, about behavior that seems to run in a family that just isn't right. It just isn't godly. It just isn't appropriate. It isn't biblical. It's iniquity. It's sin. It's wrong. It shouldn't be happening, but it happens. And somehow, in that family, they've got it in their head, perhaps, that that's normal. And the children were raised in that, and they thought that was normal. They thought these are the right responses. These are the way I should respond to life's stresses. And they're not right. And they're learned behavior, and it's wrong, and it's sinful, and it's iniquitous. And we can either take steps to cut that and end it, or we can do nothing, and we can reinforce it. Because one or the other is going to happen. It's either going to be reinforced, or it's going to be ended. Now, that's going to cover, I believe, most family problems that have a history. There is a secondary I'll mention. I think it's wise to consider identifying a family weakness that has a genetic component. Now, this is a little bit harder to do. This is difficult, but I think with some thoughtfulness, you might uncover some. I'll give you two examples I think are real. One is a predisposition for alcohol addiction. There are, there are families and there are genetic predispositions in which very limited amounts of alcohol will create an addiction. Maybe one drink. The solution, if that's your family, is never touch it. Amen. Ever. Ever. Never. Ever. It's arsenic to you. Here's another example. I think there are families that have a predisposition for depression. It's a little more subtle. Based on my observation, it seems that families that... Um, it seems to run in connection possibly with high IQ. I mean quite high IQ. Of course, I'm not a psychologist, and so I don't, won't say I have great answers in this area, but I think this is, this, is, this is an area that might need to be considered. And of course, in that case, there's, there is a solution. You've got to replace that. You've got to replace, you've got to replace that mind that is constantly spinning and constantly thinking, constantly, constantly thinking and solving problems. Constantly, constantly. That's what the high IQ people struggle with. The mind that never turns off. 
They've got to get that mind going in a positive direction. So they've got to get into Scripture. They've got to memorize Scripture. They need to memorize a lot of Scripture. They need to really infuse their life with Scripture so that their mind is spinning on the Bible and not all these other areas that take them into clinical depression. Now, there's one other. There's a third area. Uh, and this is a huge area, and it's a difficult area, and I don't really have any time to get into it, and I'm not sure I really have quite the expertise. But I do believe in, in rare cases, in terms of a family history and dealing with sin and iniquity, I do think it's possible that there is demonic transference. Demonic transference. That is, at the death of one, when, when one family member dies... That demon will look for another place to go. And right there in a family member that's close by is a good place to start. That's about all I'm going to say on that because I don't feel like I have the expertise to go further. But from what limited I, bit I, I understand, I think that this is a possibility. And uh, so if that is, is, is your case, then, then, then you need to dig into that issue. Now returning to where we began though, let's look and, and try to be practical some more. When the people of Jerusalem said, let his blood be upon us and on our children, what did that mean? Now I think, in my opinion, this did not doom their children to destruction. I do not think it did. I do not think the people in the crowd that called out that day have the power to create reality merely with their words. I do not think that they had the power over their unborn children to doom them to destruction. But it did mean something. I believe it demonstrated their unwillingness to change. It demonstrated that the people of Jerusalem that day had very hard hearts. It demonstrated that they did not want anything to do with Jesus once the miracles were gone and they perceived that repentance was what Jesus' ministry was really all about. Now they were not interested. They did not want to change. All they wanted were the goodies. All they wanted were the miracles. And when Jesus stopped doing miracles, they weren't fans of Jesus anymore. They did not want to change. They did not want to repent. And I think it could be phrased this way. Self-pride was stronger than their love for their children. I'll repeat that for you. Self-pride was stronger than their love for their children. Now, we say we love our children. And indeed we do. In fact, most of us would probably raise our hand and say, I am willing to say, I love my children more than I love myself. I love my children more than I love myself. There are certainly moments in your life in which you would say, that is absolutely a truism. I would surely throw myself in front of a speeding bus to save my child. But would you repent? But would you repent? Would you admit fault? Do we really love our children more than we love ourselves? 
Would we admit our fault in ourselves to provide a better future for our children? Based on my observations, I'd say the answer to that question is many would not. Many have such pride, many of us have such deep, abiding pride, rather than admit fault, we will destroy our children. We will go down in family calamity rather than admit fault. I've seen men who would say, I will not admit any fault. I'd rather suffer divorce. I've seen women who say, I will not admit fault. I'd rather see my family crumble around me. Let my family crumble rather than admit that I made a mistake and I need to change my ways. So I'm not sure as parents if we really should pat ourselves on the back for the love that we have for our children and the sacrifice we say we'll make for our children because I think maybe that that might not always be accurate. Our pride gets in the way. You see, if we refuse to admit fault in ourselves, we thus place our children in a very disadvantaged position, particularly as our children begin to age and mature as teens and young adults. Because now, as teenagers, as young adults, our children are now, they are in this, uh, this position where they have to identify sin in us, and they have to take steps to break that chain. They have to do the work. They have to break the chain because we have been too prideful to admit fault. And of course, this may damage their relationship with us. Now, if we've got so much pride, we can't admit that there's fault in our lives. And there's fault that maybe goes back a generation or two. And then maybe I'm just doing the same thing that I learned from my dad and my mother. I mean, that's the way dad did it. So that's the way it's got to be. I mean, that's the way I was raised. I was raised this way, so I can't change. It's the way I was brought up. Don't ask me to change. I was brought up this way. Don't ask me to change. Well, what if, what if you're brought up wrong? What if your parents taught you wrong? What if, they, what, if they, what if their habits were bad habits, sinful, iniquitous? Maybe not. It's so obvious that they come home drunk every night. More subtle than that. Perhaps. Just a word for the young adults. For the youth and the young adults in this congregation that are hearing and they're listening to this. Young adults, you have to know that all parents are flawed. As time passes, sometimes your parents begin to see the flaws in themselves. Sometimes they don't. You're going to see your parents' flaws more clearly probably than they see them themselves. You'd only be wise to try to change, to try to improve, to try to break the bad habits, to cut the past and improve, change, 
Don't make the same mistake. So you're going to have to avoid your parents' errors. Yet, as we think about this, and as we can wrap things up here, young people, and all of us, we have to be cautious. There is another commandment that's quite important. One of the big ten. It tells us, number five, honor your father and your mother. So, you've got to be wise enough to be able to cut the sinful habits and patterns of the past yet without dishonoring your parents. That might be difficult because the purpose of my discussion here is not to cause you to go home and say, well, yeah, now that I think about it, my dad was a real jerk and loser. Mr. Benson really helped me identify some, some real terrible things. And I, boy, I'm, I, I, boy, I, I don't, I don't, I think my, whew, my, and my grandfather, whoa, what an awful man he was. I'm, whew, gee whiz, thank you. Well, that's not my purpose tonight. My purpose is not to stimulate you to dishonor your parents or your grandparents. My purpose tonight is to cause us to think and reflect and be wise about how, without violating the fifth commandment, (laughs) we can also cut the sinful ties of the past. Identify them and then snip those ties so that we do not suffer the consequences by repeating those errors again and again and again. I thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and I pray tonight, being a night of repentance and being a night in which we ought to think about matters like this, I I think I'm just wondering if it might be appropriate for us to do a little self-reflection for a few minutes here before we close down for the evening and really think about our life and the lives of our parents, our grandparents, our aunts, our uncles, those that have preceded us. And ask, our, ask yourself, have, have I absorbed, have I learned some things from them that I shouldn't have? Or are there dangling issues that have trend, that are that that I'm a, that have entered my life because I haven't dealt with things that go back in time? So I, I'm thinking perhaps I'd, I'd just like to Julie, why don't you go on to the piano? I, I'd like to just ask everyone just take a few moments and think and reflect, and if there's something in your life or the life of your family, in whatever respect, that you want to make a commitment, just a personal and private commitment that you'd like to deal with, I'd I'd like to ask anybody that would like to make that commitment to put some action into that commitment by coming up to the front in an old-fashioned altar call.